0: for another awesome uh, you know, uh, Path to becoming a CFO interview. And today we have uh, Alan Chim. And Alan's been at uh, Slack for more than seven years now, but he's been the CFO for uh, approaching three and a half years now. Uh, you know, Before that, he was at a startup called Yumi and, and Yahoo and, and kind of finance leadership roles. And uh, you know, welcome Alan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So let's uh, let's jump right in, and you know, I, I want to kind of uh, start way back, right? So you you had an interesting start. You studied economics uh, in undergrad, and and uh, you did equity research, which uh, you know is is uh, unique. Uh, you know, of course, CFOS come with all kinds of different backgrounds, and and you you have your own unique background. But tell me a little bit about that journey from the early days of doing equity research, and how you ended up in in financial operations, and now, all the way to being CFO now
1: yeah uh, I'll try to give you the short version um, you know I, I was an undergrad at Wharton so I did the you know kind of business education It gave me a really broad-based uh, education on many different topics which I think would end up be very helpful uh, as I approached you know these broader operational roles but you know coming out of, out of college everyone wanted to be either a banker or a consultant or uh, kind of in, in investments in some way and I chose the path of equity research Mostly because um, I liked analysis. I liked analytics. I, you know, I was a finance concentration as well uh, in college. And, and that really allowed me to kind of dig into and understand these companies uh, from a financial perspective. And I think what I didn't realize over time was that was still a very distant view. You know, it was not, you know, I was looking at things from a p and and a balance sheet and a cash flow statement and an Excel model. And that's not how companies are built, right, as, as you and I both know very well. And so I had this opportunity to, to move from, you know, this kind of Wall Street culture to a more of a Silicon Valley culture. Um, and what was really amazing about that was this immediate connection to building something. And I think that became very intoxicating, very attractive. I could not let that go was, as soon as I was part of that. And I was able to then apply this kind of analytic analytical background into solving real problems uh, of the business. How do we acquire more customers? How do we Improve monetization. How do we increase engagement? How do we increase overall value and build something lasting and enduring? And in the process, you feel very connected to it, and you get to work with some really amazing people along the way. Uh, And so that really took me from Yahoo um, at kind of a whole scale of you know we went from six thousand employees to fifteen thousand employees, so a very large company. To then to Yumi, where I joined as um, kind of in the '30s, it was about thirty some odd employees when I joined there, and that kind of gave me the startup bug, which was start early, build it brand new, you know, see, you know, learn from a ton of mistakes and a lot of trial and error. Um, and ultimately we, we took that public um, in an IPO. Uh, and then from there, wanted to try that again and, and found my way back to Slack where I connected with Stuart Butterfield, Cal Henderson, a bunch of Yahoo alumni uh, that we were then able to kind of, you know, build from there. And that was, you know, now over seven years ago. And since then, you know, Slack has gone public um, and we recently were recently, uh, been announced that we've been acquired by Salesforce. And so there's a lot of exciting things that have happened in that kind of short time period. And I'm happy to talk more about those.
0: Yeah, no, I want to dig into that. So but before I come to the Slack journey, uh, I, I want to also quickly talk about uh, this is uh, always that interesting thing that a lot of people are aspiring to kind of go up that ladder and become a CFO thinking about is hey how do you how do you go from the VP level? Because a lot of people get to the VP level but you know it, it kind of gets narrow as you go to the top. Uh, and what sets those people apart who can go from uh, director to VP, but then SVP, what opens up that CFO opportunity? What are some of your lessons learned about maybe what set you apart in, in, in that journey to the CFO role?
1: So at Yahoo, I you know, was quickly kind of advanced and, and kind of left as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, at Yumi, I was a, a VP. Uh and then Slack I joined as a kind of EPS VP. And it was interesting because I remember I had a conversation with Stuart pretty early on, where we had this conversation about, well, why am I not the CFO? Um, and almost kind of in a presumptive kind of way, because here I am, you know, I was you know with him when there, you know, I joined Slack at 20 people. Um, I was you know direct reporting to him. I was in charge of all these areas. So on paper, I felt like, listen, I'm the CFO, like why why don't you just make me the CFO? So I was very kind of troubled by the hesitance, even the resistance to it, and it, it took me a while to, to really understand it. And I'll, I'll share a couple of stories. I think that will really put this into context. I, had, I was connected to um, Sean Agarwal, uh, and I don't remember the, the why, for, <laughs> but we, we met uh, at our offices, um, and he walked me. He asked me a really interesting question, which was. Tell me how, he was like, okay, tell me who reports to you. Tell me your org structure. Okay, great. Tell me how much time you're spending in each of these areas. Because I was, I, you know, I had at that point, nine or 10 direct reports. I was overseeing, you know, obviously finance and analytics and accounting, but also things like IT facilities, you know, uh, and, and and so on. And at some point, uh, legal and uh, people operations. And I remember recounting that to him and I, and I told him, Oh, in terms of time spent, it's kind of evenly spread out between these areas. And he said, no, if you're gonna be effective and if you're gonna be the CFO where you need to really become excellent and spend, be spending more of your time in particular areas, namely in kind of fp analysis, kind of understanding what's gonna drive this business forward. You know, the, the time I'm spending in, let's say IT versus facilities in a very dedicated way is not going to make the most sense for me. And that's where making decisions around leadership team, building out a leadership team, knowing, knowing what to delegate was made very clear for me in like that one conversation. I said, okay, listen, I need to evaluate and make sure I'm, I'm, I am thinking about this in a way that a CFO would be thinking about this, right? Designing a structure in an organization that can support that scale and growth over time. So that was the first thing. I would say though, the most formative experience though that really tipped it for me between VP versus CFO is um, I had a, a 360 review done in i want to say august of 2017. and so out of that review there was you know, a lot of you know that's really you when know, you get from your peers you get from um, a fellow executive for me with fellow executives some of my direct reports um, and even some board members we had uh, weighing on that but there was one thing so there was obviously a lot of good things you know hard worker you know um, high integrity that kind of thing but there was one thing that stood out that was more let's say constructive which was Alan's kind of fixation on becoming the CFO is distracting him from being effective in his job, which floored me because that's, you know, as somebody who wants to kind of earn from my own merit and for my own skill, that seemed, made me s- seem like this kind of hyper ambitious kind of angling for something that maybe I didn't deserve. And that really challenged me because it it made me ask, you know, really what is the value that I I wanna bring to an organization? What what part do I wanna play in it? And the irony of this was, I I remember I went into Stewart's office, which was a thing back then. um, And I said, listen, I'm gonna never talk about the CFO thing again. Um, This was kind of a month later. Um, And then the irony of that was by December of that year, and he said, great. And by December of that year, I was brought into a board meeting and they said, you're gonna be the CFO of the company. And, and there was something to uh, being very clear about wanting to kind of being true to what I was actually, what I'm about versus being stuck in this hamster wheel of advancement that was, I think, allowed me to kind of excel in, in the way that I need to excel. And then the last thing I would say, I know there's, there's, there's a lot in here and happy to unpack this further, is the orientation from me versus the team. And I think, when I remember when I would do annual reviews, like getting up to call a VP level, I was very focused on like, here's my thing. Here's the things, things I will check the box on. Here's uh, where I will, you know, my performance review is about the things I've accomplished. The thing, the performance review for a CFO is the company's performance, the total company's performance, like a CEO, right? It's obviously a little bit different, but, and that orientation then, forces me to ask the question, okay, well, then how would I drive the company's performance? Well, there's obvious things in my, uh, in my responsibility around budgets and investments, but it really is around people. How do I move people and align people and inspire them and motivate them to drive the outcomes that we need as an organization cross-functionally? Um, and that was a, a real um, shift in the, in the mindset and also in the way that I would start thinking about my own development over time.
0: Got it. Now that is fascinating. Let's, let's dig into uh, that Slack journey a little bit more, right? Like Slack, Slack itself is such a fascinating company. You know, you, you talked about how you were employee number 20. I, I remember, uh, you know, in, in my previous startup, one of, uh, you know, uh, the executives on our team was a friend of Stuart and we were in in the beta you know uh, pool right. of yeah. slack users even before it launched right and, yeah. and yeah. Like, hey, new cool new product and I think slack was just going from this gaming company to making this new you know mm-hmm. chat product and and uh, we were one of those early companies using it and we loved it and we were all in and and you know and of course this was like I don't know seven eight uh, years ago and yeah. uh, I, I've, I've spent way too much time in slack every day uh, since then but uh, clearly you were there very early you were going uh, through that journey and But what what is very typical for, you know, and if you look at kind of the uh, history of any startup that goes through the kind of growth that Slack does, the first finance leader who joins at 20, 30, 40 employees is almost never the CFO when the company goes public, right? And and, and there is... uh, Always, this risk aversion that comes from the CEO, from the board, especially especially as the company is going public, about just bringing in somebody who's been there, somebody who's done that, and and obviously, you, you kind of, you got that opportunity to ride that wave and and get into that uh, CFO do the job, and and, and uh, all of that. What was that journey like for you? And and what are some lessons you took away about? positioning yourself, maybe, of course, you talked a little bit about maybe you were a little too fixated on it to begin with, but then uh, the feedback uh, was helpful, uh, but then, you know, what made you think ultimately gave Stuart the confidence, the board the confidence to say, no, Alan is ready, right? So he can be the one who takes us public. And, and what did you learn from that journey?
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I would agree that you don't need a CFO for a 20-person company. Um, and, or if, even if you call it that, it does not mean the same thing um, at, at much, you know, uh, more relevant orders of scale, thousands of employees, you know millions, hundreds of millions, billions of revenue. Those are very different jobs. There are a couple of things. Um, knowing the business was really important, right? And I think this is also true about the journey of the CFO and the, the evolution of the CFO role over time. It is less about just tracking what has happened in the past but also having a point of view about what to drive, how to drive the results in the future, right? Uh, Knowing how um, A goes to B, goes to C, ultimately then drives the revenue. Um, That, those things, I'm obviously oversimplifying here, but that um, understanding and actually kind of leadership in those areas becomes critically important in evolving as a finance leader. The the part that becomes, uh, you, you know, really, you think more more existing kind of VPs of finance we get the benefit of is you know they have a relationship with the with the existing founder or the CEO CEO slash founder, um, but they often don't have a relationship with the board, so you kind of forget there's multiple stakeholders here. They might not have any relationship or any exposure to the investor community, right? Now again, these are not things that necessarily are done all at the same time, but they're all it 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 really shows the spectrum of considerations and stakeholders that you need to be aware of and acknowledge that are part of that decision, whether they, whether you think they should be or not, right? Because the orientation of CFO is much more, you're the face to the public markets, you're the face to the investor community, you're the face to the company, right? One of the things I, I remind myself when I do my own goaling is I have multiple jobs. I have you know my job as kind of CFO public company but I'm I also a people manager of my teams, you know, finance and such, but I'm also CFO of all of Slack, right? So I need to be thinking about that entire population, engineers, salespeople, um, in the same way that I think about the people that report into my, my org structure. So that, that that there's a lot of shifts that happen there. And I think what, what people miss is that you, it, it, and I was touching on this a little bit earlier, this individual orientation gets flipped on its head, right? It's not about, okay, Um, did I do this, did I, you know, did I achieve this or that? It's more around, okay, am I the one who's able to now help drive this greater company outcome? Am I able to, you know, get a company ready to go public? That is about building the right team, hiring the right people, um, being able to craft an investor narrative, building out that that function. Um, And even if you don't do those things per se, right, you need to be able to direct and lead that ship and, and that's, that's the orientation right now, all of a sudden people are going to be looking to you to inspire, lead, guide, align them, right? That comes back to that comment about your time. So then it's, you look at all the meetings that you're having and if everything is very execution and all, oh, I need to go and update the spreadsheet or update the model or update the forecast, or, you know, you're, you're still very trapped in that. Then it becomes self-fulfilling. People will only see you in that, um, in that lens as well. And, and there is something very liberating about saying, you know what, let me go down the growth path that i meant to grow, I meant to go down, which is kind of what I was trying to allude to in my, my story about the feedback. And the things that then I feel like I can drive impact in that I'm going to focus on, that I've gotten feedback on like where I can focus, which is investing more in people, investing more in kind of the processes, investing more in the relationships with the leadership team, investing more in advising the CEO and the board well, guess what? That's the job of a CFO, right? you sort of end up that way versus versus you know again knocking on the door so many times and, and asking for that 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 becomes quite counterproductive and it kind of misses the point of what the job is meant to be. Um, so there is no you know silver bullet by any means, but I would say you know underpinning a lot of this is you. I remember the first time I uh, realized I'm, I'm going to do a lot more public speaking because of the CFO role. And I wouldn't say I'm a natural public speaker by any means, but I remember watching like CNBC one time, it was one of the Fed governors and it was this very, it wasn't uh, Powell, but this was years ago. Um, and he was on, on, on there and he was amazing. He was very deliberate. He was very strong. I was like, my goodness, how does someone like have that gift? You know, or they're just born with like this amazing speaking ability. And I realized, you know, that the, the secret and not, not such a hidden secret is people practice. You put in the reps, you put in the time to do that um, and that's again back to the time because if your time is only spent on knowing every cell in the Excel model, well there's a value to that for sure. but is that taking away from your time and becoming and developing some of these other skills which would be important giving feedback, running you know running sites, um, um, running strategy sessions, uh, being able to you know speak in town um, all hands meetings and, and 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 that sort of thing investor narratives all those things are they they coming out of trade off and so that it's about being able to put in that time put in that work and also develop these skills that you probably don't even realize you need to have
0: all right. and look there are companies and then there is slack right and slack was on just you know just completely different trajectory than most companies and and uh, you know went public acquired for about 27, 28 billion. That kind of growth curve going from 20 employees to the company that Slack it is today, uh, the curve was pretty steep, right? And as you think Mm -hmm. about just the very visible kind of company that Slack is today and and, and growing into the CFO role of a company like that, what was that, uh, you know, uh, growth path like for you? Did you do anything specific to prepare that like you, you talked about public speaking and, and focusing on that. And, uh, and when you look back over the last seven years, I imagine it was like rocket ship, right? And how, how do you think about some of the growth challenges that were thrown at you and, and how you uh, coped with it and any lessons then?
1: It's so, it's so interesting because we have this, um, I don't know, obsession, I'll call it in society where there's like here are the 30 under 30 and the 35 under 35 and the 25 because everything has to be done so fast. Um, and, and somehow faster is better. I remember I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast and he was talking about the LSAT. And the hardest thing about the LSAT is finishing it or, or something to that effect. Like you could, and 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 that's what gets rewarded, is that you can go through these things as quickly as possible. So there's to be clear, there's obviously a value to efficiency. But when I look back, you know, I worked at Yahoo. Um, and I worked at, you know, financial services and I looked and I worked at UMI and none of those names on their own, um, would have put me in in the opportunity to, to be the CFO, but all those things together actually gave me the right combination to be successful here. And what I mean by that is, you know, financial services was a training ground. I mean, that was, you know, there's some discussion about what that means today, but it was very much a rite of passage, right? You learn how to work super hard you can see things through to the end no matter what crazy deadlines are there i'm old school that way this this hard work this like just crank it out until it's done um that tenacity that perseverance it cannot be taught it has to be kind of experienced and, and developed um the second is I worked at a very established company, Yahoo, and also growing very quickly, but just a whole other scale, global in nature, multiple business lines, multiple functional groups, multiple leaders. Um, And so, you know, being part of that environment helped me understand the challenges and the opportunities that come from having more resources, right? Having more people involved. It's, you can argue it both ways. And and unfortunately in in Yahoo's case, they experienced more of the challenges than the opportunities uh, at, at their scale. Then there was Yumi and, and Yumi, I always tell my wife, because um, when I joined Yumi, all my friends were joining Facebook. Uh, a lot of my closest friends were joining Facebook. And I said, this is never gonna take off. This is just like stupid social network thing. And this is why I don't make public company investments. Um, I, let, I let professionals handle that. Um, but, but specifically then, you know, and this is you know, Facebook obviously had massively successful now, right? Um, and then, uh, and so, and so, but I remember from there, you know, I was kind of grinding away here at Yumi learning all and making tons of mistakes and, you know, learning by doing, um, how to help stand up a sales force, how to start uh, expanding globally, how to get ready for, to be a public company, kind of training by, um, trial by fire. Right. As I say, and then we got the slack and I, and I say to, I always remind her, I'm like, listen, there is no slack for us if there was no Yumi, because my ability to navigate this part of Slack, especially that really steep part of the bend was because I, in a lot of ways, just didn't make the same mistakes. I knew how to look around the corners. I knew, I understood what I like to call, now call like the half-life of growth, which is depending on how quickly a company doubles should orient the the way that you would make decisions, like the the time for you to make decisions. So for example, we were growing extremely quickly um, in the very beginning now, 15, 20% a week, you know, in terms of uh, users and, and ARR. And, you know, at that rate, you know, you make a decision and then three months later, it's, it's obsolete because, you know, it's, just, it's a very different uh, size business at that point. And, and, you know, that played into, for example, what ERP we went with, how quickly we went down that path, how quickly we different, installed different systems, how quickly expanded offices even. And being able to stay ahead of the curve meant that my, my value at that point was I was not going to disrupt everyone else my job was to make a smoother path for the rest of the company uh, at, at that point and so i when, when people think about like okay like what what should i do and they're looking for kind of they always think about it kind of in this very narrow it's about this job you know i, I often even just advise people when they think about their next job tell me about what you want to do two jobs from now yeah you know, oh and they say i want to be the cfo and say okay well then then what does this job do for you to get to that not in and it of itself, but how does this play into your longer longer arc here? Versus you kind of optimize for things that are very short term in nature, very kind of s- small, especially when you think about them in the context of maybe a few years versus you know maybe a couple decades, right? Um, and that's hard. That's hard. It's hard to zoom out because we're so zoomed in and, and we're working you know so hard and we're grinding so hard day in and day out. But to be able to zoom out and or and at least have people have that conversation with you too, so that you can kind of flex back and forth between that and, and and really calibrate what's right for you. Because again, what's right for you is not, there's not one answer there. And I think that's the other part too, is getting out of this, keeping up with the Joneses of your career path. When you see, you know, again, the 40, your friend is on the 40 under 40 list. Oh my gosh. Like, why am I not on the 40 under 40 list? Because, you know, I did better than them at school. I mean, there's all these like weird narratives we tell ourselves and it's not helpful. It's not helpful. It, it's, it's, finding that, again, this is part of maturing too, like I'm 40 now, and there's a reason why I can do this now at this stage of my life versus if I was 30, because when I was 30, I had a lot a lot to learn Um, and about myself even, about my identity, about all those kinds of things. And I don't wanna digress too much into that path. I think that story of maturation just comes with this, right? And I think that's uh, that's an important thing just to to remember as everyone's going through it, to, to not be in such a rush, you know, we're growing. I, I got this great gift to grow up as this amazing company was growing. And so I would like to think that we helped each other and there was some symbiosis that happened there.
0: Got it. That's fascinating. And so changing direction a little bit, you talked earlier about how Sean uh, you know, impressed upon you the importance of focusing on the future, right? Like how to be that strategic partner, strategic finance, a lot of the, you know, uh, questions I've heard in the past about people is around that background that gives you a better chance to go become a CFO in the future, right? There's always this strategic finance background, there is you know, the accounting audit control kind of uh, controller background. And, and it almost seems like there is an edge for the people who come from that strategic finance background and who are able to engage with the CEO, the board, and be that thought partner as the business is being built. They have that edge in kind of getting those uh, CFO roles. How have you thought about that? And what's your input to maybe uh, for the people who who haven't been doing that, but who are coming up the uh, accounting path?
1: There is that saying, you you wanna be in the room where it happens, right? And I will tell you, the conversation there is not about your REVREC policy. It is not about um, the different accounting standards that you might, you know, well, hopefully not because if it is, something bad really happened. Um, And it's not to take away from the skills and the experience that those individuals uh, bring to the table because I have a great team um, on that front and they make my life and the company's life better because they're good at what they do. But I think the intersection of, where that skill set, or the limitation of that that skill set has, is maybe maybe not super obvious because, the, again, the orientation is around the future. Orientation is around how do we get there, and what would it take to get there? Right. Those are the questions I'm sure you're asking, right? Which is you have a goal, you have a TAM, you have a, a SAM, uh, you have you know um, your differentiation, you have your you know, Porter's you know forces, and whatever way that you do your kind of three-year planning. And then you put a bogey out there and then the question is, okay, now how do we go, right? And some things don't exist, right? Some teams don't exist. Some countries where you want to have operations don't exist. How do you get there? And so there's there is a, a real important um, understanding of how do you go from kind of point A to point B, right? What does it take? Uh, how would you, where would you even start, right? Okay, yes, there is some financial modeling. That's that's a, a relevant part of it, but it's it's really around, okay, well, um how can I just start somewhere, invest uh, hire? what areas would we want would we want to start doing there? How would I measure it? How would I assess whether it's being effective or not? How would I set goals and, and milestones along the way because great, I have a three-year goal out there, but you know if I'm I could probably say within three or six months, are we on track or not? Definitely within a year I, I should be able to tell that. So how would you do that? And you start to un, kind of unpack these different elements of that, and I think that's where, what I advise to people is stay in your growth. You know, if you're in a, in a company that's growing, so learn more about how the revenue is, like, what, it's surprising. I remember the, the biggest thing for me I learned about Yahoo when I first joined was the revenue line there that shows up on their financial statements means absolutely nothing to the people on the ground. What they care about is getting users, driving traffic, you know, are they coming through SEO versus SEM? Are they clicking on these paid parts of the website? And then ultimately you get to revenue. So I often just challenge folks. Do you even know how your business makes money? Do you even know how it gets to the thing that you are, are recording here? Not, not just, you know, okay, I get, you know, obviously there's the, the process of it, but the, but underlying it, what would we need to do more? Okay, are, we, are you sales driven? Okay, if you're sales driven, then what would that look like, right? And really, and, and so maybe that's not your day job. But there are plenty of people that you could talk to. Um, now, probably not a coffee, but a Zoom call, where I think that would be really interesting to share on on both sides. Because again, I don't have an accounting background. I learned from our accounting team about things I need to know about, and there is a mutual learning curve between the b- between the two of us there. Especially as you know, accounting accounting principles have, have changed over accounting standards have changed over the last couple of years, in particular. Um, so that that's that's what I would say. Think about those areas that you don't have, find ways to supplement it, talk to more people, um, kind of reorient yourself. And again, it's not that you are uh, deficient in some way or that it's less valuable, but it's incomplete for sure, um, if you want to go down that path. And also ask yourself, is that really the path you wanna go down? Um, Because I think that's the the fundamental question. If if, if it ends up being, oh gosh, on this achievement arc, that's the natural endpoint for all of us, I, I just, you know, first of all, I think that's not true because I, I don't think everyone should have that job because I don't think everyone wants that job once you actually think about what that job is. And, and so that's, that's the part where I say to folks, what is the job that you think it is? Like, what is the job they actually want? Um, because if it is like, Hey, listen, if you love the modeling, if you love being close to those things, don't be the CFO because I spend very little time modeling, very little time on those things. I spend much more time again, in some of the areas that we were
0: talking about. Yeah. It's like, what your definition of happiness, right.
1: And, it's true that's why the personal journey is such a you know is intersects with this you know like we we want to say oh it's my career stuff and then I've got my personal stuff here and come on I mean of my waking hours the majority of my waking hours are spent with with work in slack <laughs> in slack in slack too <laughs> right um, and 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 that's there is a there's a realization there for me which was gosh it is not. This sphere over here and this sphere over here. There's actually an integration of those things, and the more comfortable that I think every person gets with that, the more I would say it's the the biggest opportunity for you to realize your your true potential, your true path.
0: Okay. awesome. Well, that, that's a fantastic answer. And let's talk a little bit about um, you. You mentioned Sean, and, and it looks like you've you've uh, learned from mentors. And was there a process there? Like, how important were mentors to your success and and as you look back uh, on that journey uh, did you have like a method behind it were you organized and saying look i want mentors and and then catching up with them regularly and things like that like how did you do it
1: i laugh at this a little bit because i don't think <laughs> i don't think anyone's ever come to me and said alan be my mentor and and i and i would say i, I don't know it'd be a little bit weird know it's not a typical request um what i've pretty much said yes to you know more often than not especially within the company is can we just catch up about about things and i i was very fortunate in my own journey to because (laughs) some of our vcs had a lot riding on slack success and here was this you know young guy you know never before a cfo kind of in charge of the finances here they actually went out of their way to find me a mentor <laughs> or someone that I could talk to about it. And, and I, you know, I joke about it now, but it's been really, really amazing. I've gotten to connect with Tim Cabral, uh, who is, I think, now formerly a Viva, but longtime Viva CFO. I mean, amazing guy. Um, so good at his job, and that company has been so successful under his kind of watch. And he and I developed a relationship. And it was just, you know, it was interesting. We would just catch up, and yeah, I would look for advice in certain things in certain areas. But likewise, he would ask me about different things because we were looking at different systems that they were considering, and we had moved forward on it, and they they were, you know, contemplating it. And it it became this much more organic relationship that was there. I'll, to be clear, in that process of trying to find find a mentor, I was, uh, I don't know, almost like speed dating. I was matched up with some other some other people, and it wasn't a fit. You know, we just did not. Think about the world the same way. Then we didn't have natural conversations, and so it's totally okay to sh- strike out and not feel like it's a fit. Um, but the, the part that I, I would say I've been very fortunate about on top of the the the, the Tim Cabral relationship um, was you know Sarah Fryer, and then later Graham Smith you know joined our board, um, and Sarah now she's CEO of, of Nextdoor, but you know she was you know longtime CFO of Square, and just learned so much from her. Um, and just really enjoyed that we had this almost—I uh, don't know—she was our audit chair for a period there, like this mandatory time where we get to c- catch up. And, I, and I've really valued the audit chair's role in. Um, obviously, they have an oversight role, um, so I don't want to say it's, it's complete, like it's a partnership. But there's definitely something—the partnership elements to it—that I think are really important. And so, learning from Sarah and learning from Graham, who was former CFO, longtime former CFO of, uh, of Salesforce have been really important in the different stages that I kind of needed them. You know, Sarah was, before we went public, we spent a lot more time together. No one's once Graham came on, as we were public, I would say Graham is like the best board member uh, in, in terms of the audit chair, you know, that I, I have a limited sample, but on that, on that front where it really kept us organized, really kept us uh, on top of things. And in that process, we could develop a relationship. We could have very open conversations. We could give feedback to each other um on on how things were going and, and that was extremely helpful so i would just encourage everyone asking for help is natural forcing mentorship is unnatural um, and you're going to have uh plenty of misses like it's not you don't bat a thousand of this uh, but you know it's it's the regularity it's the checking in it's the sharing that i think was what makes it grow versus it's only kind of one way that i'm you know i'm yoda and you're you know, Luke Skywalker, and I'm, you know, I'm giving you something down that way. It, that 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 doesn't exist. That doesn't really make sense.
0: Got it. And also, in terms of growth, you talked about practicing public speaking and and some of these uh, uh, other areas of important skills that you need to build as you're going, you know, up that uh, ladder in terms of responsibility and all of that, right? But you know, when, when you think about management, leadership, which is such an important part of being, say, uh, for team building and all of that. Did that just come naturally to you? Or, or is that something you had to work at? And and uh, how did you build those skills? How, what does that I, mean? I think, Yeah,
1: I think some of my team is probably on this call too. So they would probably laugh at that. Um, no, it wasn't natural. Um, so, some parts, you know, I think you learn from life and just how you deal with people. Um, listening is so um underrated these days because people are so focused on being loud um, but listening really helps so much especially in a finance role because you can align better to the goals of your partners and your stakeholders in particular um, but i th- there was um a couple things i want to say on this the first is somewhere a few years ago you know again also through 360 feedback the question was hey well, you know alan's more interested in execution and maybe less around his management, um, you know, responsibility or developing his people. You know, something around like that management coaching element. And I took that. It was it was hard to hear. And I remember I would start to say to my team, you know, listen, I know I'm not the best manager. I would I always have this like caveat in front of things, and I, I know it's not necessarily my focus. And they said, listen, I, I get that you're trying to do better. That's not helping. <laughs> there are times and moments for vulnerability. This is not one of them. Um, And, and instead, you know, a couple of things helped me. I, I started orienting around. I hope that one day somebody would, you know, when they move on from Slack or there's someone somewhere else in their career, they would say, if they were asked the question, like, who was the best manager or leader you worked for? They would say me. I don't know if I'm there yet, but I, I think about that more as like the bar to to go after. And it, it kind of relates to this other thought I had, which is. A lot of times it's helpful to look outside of our own experience. What I found, I look outside of my own experience and I would say, okay, what if I wasn't CFO, but somebody else, you know, Stewart decided to bring somebody else into CFO. What would they be doing? How would they be different than me? And then I would think about those things and those qualities maybe in coaching and in management. I would, and I would say to myself, or public speaking, and I would say, well, why can't I do that? Because I'm actually in the seat right now. I can go and do that. And I don't have to kind of wait and observe. And then when that happens, what ha- you know, what, of course the feeling is, oh, well, bitterness, resentment, because you said, well, listen, you never gave me a shot. I could have easily done those things. Listen, you want to be treated like a CFO? Start to act like a CFO and take this into your own hands. No one is going to give you the how-to menu here of check these boxes, then become CFO. That only exists up to maybe even VP. Uh, kind of I stretch it there right there is no kind of one path that that works for them it's about living and understanding what that role looks like understanding what they think that role looks like too on some level um and then developing to that point because that's what you can work on that's what you can control um and and, and so you start to think about okay well if i have to orient my time that way it creates this ripple effect because the more time you're spending on this is taking time from something else so then can you learn to delegate some of those other responsibilities? That that's how it all connects for me. Look,
0: yeah, you know, and and also when you're in such a high profile role, you know it, it seems like you're somewhere out there CFO for you know 28000000000 eight billion dollar company. People forget the day to day challenges, right? Like so, I, should, I want to ask you: how, how is the transition to this entire work from? Home been for you and your team? And what has that transition been like?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I will admit, in the beginning, it was really hard. Um, I value the separation uh, from work and home life, um, as I'm sure many of us have come to appreciate. Well, at least that was my reaction in the beginning. Now I'll tell you how it's changed over time. So, you know, my kids, you know, this is like, you know, March, April, like you know, almost a year ago to the day. And my kids are, you know, zoom bombing me and, you know, there's, there is no school and it's just all it's chaos. And I'm not alone in that. Everyone's going through that together. And at the same time, you know, we felt like there was this, you know, rallying cry to, you know, make sure that we were there because you know our, our product existed to help many companies navigate this remotely, right. And navigate this maybe even more effectively. And, and, and so for for the team you know i think there was that initial kind of surge and high that everyone's going through just riding the adrenaline and then we realized oh my goodness this is going to be not a one or two month thing this is going to be a, a multi-quarter uh thing uh, as we're all now all now experiencing and at that moment um uh, personally uh a couple of shifts happened i think similarly to where you know i was talking about you know integrating that work life with the home life well if this forced that <laughs> because my home life was my work life which was my kid's school life which was you know play time I mean it was all the same place in the same rooms um in the same times um so there was there was integration and and, and, and to me the realization was well if I'm going to help, if I'm going to help my team and support my team I can't take the way we used to do things and then try to just you know, switch them up at the, at the margin and, and, and remote remote make them more remote. I'd have to blow it all up and rethink what makes sense for people right now. And, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. The biggest one that we did was we used to have, you know, the quarterly all hands. Everyone comes together, everyone like kind of share and, and hear updates on. And we said, doesn't make sense because, you know, I've been on calls with even more than I would say 10 people on Zoom. And it's the, the, the effectiveness goes way down right? The ability for people to feel engaged, the ability for people to feel like it's, you know, really connecting with them. So I said, scrap that. Let's do smaller town halls. We'll only do groups of 10 or 15 and everyone will get a chance to kind of go through. And that, yes, that means I have to do more of them, but the impact and the effectiveness is significantly higher. It's not even on the same scale. And so we kind of did some of that. Um, you know, we, we looked at revamping our meetings and we said, listen, we want to make pre-reads more required. It's hard to make that the firm requirement, but at least for the ones I'm in, you know, pre-reads are now mandatory. And so people can spend some time looking at it. We started to put less projecting on the screens and more like kind of reading at our own pace and then putting comments in for questions and then driving meetings that way. And it's been, you know, again, not not 100% hit rate, but I would say more often than not, you people have seen the benefit of that. and um, And we're trying to just keep iterating and growing off of that. So, you know, so remote work and this transition have had its share of challenges, but I think importantly as companies and as leaders, giving people the space and acknowledging these this kind of integrated reality that we are now all in together and not trying to force people to separate those when they can't, um, I think has been probably the most important kind of policy and, and kind of uh, principle we've embraced as a company and and clearly, our product we think enables that further for beyond our company and for all of our customers as well. Uh, but that that's something that I think has been a really important kind of principle, and you know, just not holding on to the way it was and trying to adapt it, but really, actually inviting people into kind of these new ideas. And um, you know, it's, it's, this 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 is the kind of thing where there are no bad ideas. I would say, and when you're again, if you're oriented the right way, saying like, what's, what would be something different? And I, I, I'll just give you two, two other kind of fun examples. Um, I said to my team, um, why don't I just send everybody a DM that says, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for helping us through this really challenging time and your work is important. More, more important than ever. And everyone's like, okay. And so I sent 200 DMs to all the people on my team. And I I can't tell you, you know, for some people I've never sent them a message before, for a lot of them. And the first message that they got from me was this. And again, it it just humanizes this moment in a way that technology can make it feel, make it feel very dehumanizing. And so I think the more we can lean into that and and actually find opportunities to, um, to humanize this and to bring back the humanity in our work um, I think is 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 really important.
0: Fascinating. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then I'm going to jump into audience uh, questions. So if you have questions, there's a Q and A button, uh, everyone at the bottom of your Zoom window. So please go ahead and put them in. I'll, I'll get to them in a few minutes. Uh, so I'll, he here's another one for you, right? So we, we live in uh, um, you know interesting times, and as a C level leader of a really prominent kind of uh, company that is in the public eye. You now have kind of the opportunity, and expectation, and maybe partially responsibility to speak up about important issues, right? And and uh, you know, and you've been doing your bit, you know, uh, uh, in terms of uh, being a voice for the Asian community and all of that kind of stuff. So, wh- how do you think about the platform you now have to bring about that positive change? And, and what are some of those expectations? And were you even prepared for that? And and, and how do you think about that?
1: I did not prepare for it, for sure. I don't think anywhere in any of those 360 reviews or feedback conversations was there an expectation that, that this would be part of that. Um, but I, I think it comes back to that orientation. It is not about what I expect. At the end of the day, um, if people are misaligned or confused um, on, on their work, it's because I, I always view it as, hey, if the project landed well, it's because the team did a great job but I mean, this is kind of the philosophy I subscribe to. The project landed, well, team did a great job. If the project didn't land, it's because leadership failed somewhere. Leadership failed to prioritize, align, communicate, uh, resource, whatever it might have been. And therefore we have to go back and fix it, right? It, along those lines, definitely there was this increasing, I mean, this is, you know, this last 13 months uh, in particular, have been, um, you know, unprecedented. We've used that word a number of times here, um, in, in the, I'm sure, in that, in that period. And talking about things again in a, in a more integrated way um, became necessary. Um, and even if I wasn't, I, I, you know, I don't self-describe as an activist, but I have come to appreciate the role of activism. I have come to appreciate the role that these discussions play in furthering progress Um, i don't necessarily subscribe to or i would say i have the solutions to these things but you know i would say the in the recent events that you know particularly around the heightened activity and violence around the asian american community i I mean i felt that personally and and i think there was initial it was there was an initial reaction and this maybe kind of a cultural influence to just internalize that you know but Interestingly, I had a, another Asian American employee at the company reach out to me and say, this is really hurting me. It's really hurting me personally and would be great if you could amplify kind of our voice on this. And I said, wow, like, I didn't think of that as my role, but I am happy to do it because one, I feel it too. And two, like if this is a way that I can support you, I'm happy to do that. And I didn't really think about like, the repercussions of that. And also, I'm really fortunate to work with a, a company and a leadership that supports kind of being, you know, speaking out on these on these areas um, where you know, where they where they really move us. And so that I would I would say it's something that I'm growing into. I- I'm learning because that is the other part about you know I remember what I used to think about being being in a meeting with the CFO. It's not about how I view myself. It's about how these people view me. And so then, in a lot of ways, this there's, there's expectation. There's responsibility. There's a lot of you know, uh, benefit of the doubt you get, but with that also comes this opportunity to do more, to support them, to, to use that power and influence in a way that you might not think you have, but I have, I've been very surprised by the reception that it has gotten.
0: Got it. No, thank you for uh, doing that. And in- look, no as you know there were a whole bunch of other things that i wanted to discuss with you but i want to make sure we have time for uh, questions sure. from yeah. i'm going to i'm going to jump into that uh, now but before i do that uh, you know very quickly for those of you who are not familiar with airbase uh, you know we're a spend management platform that brings together all of the non payroll spend that happens in a business into a single platform right so we 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 have support for card spend corporate card spend management bill payments and reimbursements and if you want to replace like three or four different systems and bring it all into one uh, you know, we can help with that. And uh, Laura will put up a quick yes, no question. If you're interested in learning more, uh, please let us know. And, and we are happy to reach out and, and tell you more about that. But all right. So uh, having said that, let me jump into some of uh, the questions. Uh, here was a good one. So you've been in in uh, you know Slack for seven years now. You joined when there were 20 employees. What are some of the lessons you learned around how you built out that team around you? For example, what roles were important in the order in which you hired them? If you look back at it, right? So are there some lessons you learned about, you know, maybe fp and accounting and all these other functions that you've managed over time? How did the needs of the business change as it scaled to 200, 300, 500,000 employees? And, and uh, any quick thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, um, I subscribe to the, you know, I think this is the Rakuten uh, CEO who, who uses kind of this idea of rule three and 10. And so the idea there is um, at every kind of three and 10, there is a fundamental shift in the company in terms of how you do things. And so you can see that from even from one employee to three employees, how you would work has to, be, it has to be very different three to 10, 10 to 30, 30 to 100, and so on and so forth. So Slack went through multiple versions of those. And for me, it was always a good rule of thumb to ask myself, okay, well, are we doing things the way that we were doing? So when we were at called 7, 800 people, are we doing things the way that we've been doing since we were 300, or are we starting to think about what we need to do when we're a thousand? Um, and so on and so forth. And it always forces that conversation to be thinking ahead, right? Because the, these things are better addressed when you plan and you prepare versus when you react. Because when you react, it's always more expensive, it's more disruptive um, and so on and so forth. So I like to, I like to give people that as a, as a good way of, of thinking about, okay, Gosh, where would that show up? I mean, you can just see it both globally for the company, but also locally for your teams, right? So even for the finance team or the teams that I I, I was uh, managing, right? There's this same dynamic where, gosh, when we were three of us, ten of us, thirty of us, hundred of us, you know, and, and growing from there, we had to similarly rethink the management structure, the processes, the systems, investment, the way. And I would always, you know, I was always be a big proponent of making sure that the, the team was focused and the company was focused on scale, not just growth, right? Growth scale in my overly simplified version, uh, definition was you grow, but you also drive efficiency as that happens. So you might have a human that generates one handwritten invoice you know, a day. If you need to do 10 of them, you don't hire 10 humans, right? You figure out a way to reinvent that so that that can be done in a more efficient way. And so that that kind of principle has really kind of permeated through um, the way that, that when we talk about it, how seriously we take it and how seriously we take investing in it.
0: Got it. And I think uh, June Park has a question about, you, know, you don't have an accounting background, but but clearly you talked about how you have an awesome team that you collaborate with, maybe a controller. How do you think about you know, the, the level of depth that you should be going into, especially as you become a public company and the requirements there, uh, are a lot more stringent and things like that. How do you make that judgment call on how deep you go versus uh, how you partner with the, the leader in that area? Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I have to dedicate time to it for sure. So we have monthly reviews. Uh, we had in those reviews, you know, this is kind of some BBA, um stuff that happens. Um, you know, the flux analyses that kind of we that get produced there. And in those reviews, we are also signaling, hey, listen. 606 is coming down the pike here um, or the new leasing standard is coming down the pike here. Here's what to expect on that. And I'll ask my questions there. If I require a follow-up, I ask for that follow-up. I think at the end of the day, it is about understanding that I have a responsibility to, especially as a public company, I am literally signing my name onto documents representing the accuracy of what's being being shown here. So I I have to know. Um, Now, I trust the team tremendously to package it in a way that I can understand it. Uh, and then as I have questions, they're very quick to follow up. And again, this is you know where we leverage Slack and then channels. We can have it doesn't we don't have to wait to the next meeting. We can actually have much more kind of real-time communication and collaboration that way. So I think that has gone a long way to kind of balancing that. And again, I came from business undergrad. So I took basic accounting. I took accounting 101, 102, at least it was called for us. Um, and so I understand the you know the general, you know, the ledger and and all, and all the different kind of debits and credits that need to happen there. Um, so I think that also is a, a minimum that I think folks would need to have to, to be able to, to do the job well.
0: Got it. And Doug has a question about as you were going through that, you know, 22,000 journey and beyond, how did you know when to hand off things? Okay, now is the time to delegate versus, you know, I'm assuming you were you were the IC, uh, you know, in the early days in some areas, but then at mm-hmm. some point you decided to hand it off, right? But if there are other people in that journey now, you know, going through the 20, 50, 100, 150, what made you confident? Okay, now is the time to hand off something.
1: Um, I think it's just, I mean, alignment with what's important, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it it will seem maybe too easy to say this, but prioritization is not easy to really say that I have a fixed capacity to do so many things exceptionally well. And I, I really stress this to my team. I would much rather have them do things complete and well versus incomplete and okay, right um, because that focus right and the output that you get and the benefit that you get is, is very different on, on so many different levels that we probably don't have time to talk about here. So in, in terms of when do I delegate well I think it's the, I, I prioritize what's important to the business? what's important to the team, right Where do I need where do I need to be spending time? Where do I and then where do we need and where are the things that we need to get to those things? Or are, are we not getting? And therefore, I need to relook at staffing, relook at resourcing, relook at leadership, relook at my own time spent in those areas. Right. And that's also helpful because I get again, finance is an enabler, right? We we resource the things that the company needs. So I spend time with our head of sales, I spend time with our head of marketing, I spend our time with our head of product and engineering and saying, What do you need? What how is it going? What's working? What's not working? Okay. And that's really valuable feedback because um, I get, I get to hear it from their point of view, not just from the numbers. And I obviously take that with the numbers and say, well, here's what we can do. Right. And based on that, we, you can make those prioritization decisions.
0: Got it. And Meredith has a question about perception that you don't have enough experience. Did you ever face that? We've talked a little bit about that. It looks like you always overcame them and and, and uh, you are where you are uh, because of that. But um, you know, and, uh, did, do you, go back to your career and, and look at specific situations where you felt you deserved an opportunity, but you were not given that opportunity because of a perceived lack of experience and any advice on, on, on how you handle that?
1: Um, I, I think, well, I think a conversation is important there, right? I mean, I mean whether it's mentors or advocates, I think it is it, that is really important. And there is no formula, I would say, to, to, to do that, except to ask people to say, hey, like, listen, you've worked with me. Could you speak to this person on my behalf or hey when this project comes up can you kind of throw in your your weight and most senior people don't know to do that so you have to nudge them um, to to do that uh, especially if, you, if you've built the trust in the relationship there now if you don't have the experience there are ways to try to build that up um but also just i mean ask for the opportunity and then if they say no don't that's not like should be this crushing blow it is, okay, well then what can I work on in the meantime so that when the next thing comes up, I'm set up for that uh, and, and I, can, I, can, I can reorient that way because you know, these things don't get gifted to people, right? They, they, you have to put yourself in a position to, to, to get it to. And um, it's also not so personal, which I think is a tendency to like, hey, listen, I've, I've been looked over for this versus if there was somebody more qualified or if there's somebody that had that experience and if this is really important to the company, would you have made a different decision? Right now, again, it's a balance there, right? If it only happens that way, then you know there's something that there's a there's a conversation lacking again with advocates and others that maybe besides your direct manager to to help on that front. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I I, maybe just start there.
0: Fascinating, and uh, there are so many more questions, Alan. I I could ask you that I I just can't get to all of them. Thank you so much, all of you, for asking the questions. Sorry, I couldn't get to many of them, but Alan, this was. Fantastic, and thank you for being so candid and and open about your own journey. And I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure a lot of other people did too. And uh, thank you again for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Good luck to all of you uh, who, are, who are on the call.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.